man, I love it. I got the opportunity to ride on a combine for the first time uh, last week, and it was, it was incredible. I'm telling you what, it was incredible. But uh, over in, um, in Death Valley National Park in California, there's a place uh, called Racetrack Playa. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard about this place before. It was kind of new to me, but it's, it's really kind of cool when you, when you think about it. Um, it's a dried-up riverbed. And uh, there are these giant stones, giant rocks, some of them up to 700 pounds. And what's interesting about these rocks is that when you look at them, and this is a picture of them, they look like they've been dragged across the, the desert floor. And it's kind of interesting, until, actually until recently, most people had no idea how exactly this happened. In fact, a lot of people thought maybe they were, they were pranks, like some kind of elaborate prank that people would come out to the desert and drag these rocks around. And they thought, well, how in the world does it look like these giant rocks, some of them up to 700 pounds, look like they're moving across the desert floor? Some people would, they guessed, maybe it was because, you know, there's really strong winds out there. It's really flat. So maybe the wind is blowing. But I don't know about you, but how much wind does it, would it take to move a 700-pound rock, right? But it wasn't until 2014 when scientists began to measure and take measurements and actually watch these stones. Now, I don't know who funded that. Let's spend lots of money watching stones. But somebody decided that was a good idea. And so they began to do some experiments and watching these stones. And what's incredible is that as they found out that these stones actually were moving, upon further investigation, they found out that it wasn't just one single element. Because people were guessing, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Uh, it wasn't just one single element that actually made these stones sail, is what they're called, sailing stones. It was actually a combination of a bunch of different things. You had to have the right kind of flooding conditions, so that there had to be enough rain where there was enough water um, in, uh, on the bed. There had to be a, a good amount of clay. There's a lot of clay there, but it couldn't be too sticky because then the rocks would stick. Um, there had to be really low temperatures that would cause the water to actually ice over and become slippery. There had to be some strong winds. And with the right combination of all of these elements together, the stones would actually move. And I thought that was that's pretty incredible. It was, it's, it's almost miraculous to think about. All of these things come together, and these 700-pound stones actually sail across the desert floor. You know, we spent several days over this last week thinking about missions from different perspectives. Um, our uh, main speaker, Pastor Jennings, did a, a fabulous job, I think, throughout the week laying out the case for missions, talking about praying for our missionaries. We heard from our missionaries in the breakout groups. If you were here Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we heard these incredible testimonies of how God had transformed their lives personally, called them into ministry, and now some of them have been faithfully ministering, or some of them are going to be going to these mission fields and doing an incredible job. But when it comes to the Great Commission for our church, it's not just one thing. It's a combination of all kinds of different things coming together in a harmony to get the gospel from here to there. There has to be a church who's willing to send. There's got to be a church, really, that's doing the job right now in winning the lost in their communities. Then God reaches down and touches an individual's lives. They say yes. They go and they raise support from churches like ours. And we've got churches all over the world that are praying for these missionaries, ours included, 
There's a partnership that goes on. Pastor even mentioned that, that we're going to be partnering financially with these missionaries. And then the missionaries go. And then the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, they're introduced in another culture, in another tongue, and people come to know Christ as their Savior. Churches are planted, and that's how the Great Commission happens. It's not just one superhero standing up, so here I'm going to go and go save the world. It's a, a combination of all kinds of elements that God releases the miraculous across the world, and people are saved. Now, I want to talk specifically about one of those elements today, and Pastor already mentioned it. It's the idea of being generous and giving to faith promise and to the mission uh, ministry of Trinity Baptist Church, which leads us to our text today. But I want to kind of set, set the, uh, the tone, if you will, before we read any farther into these scriptures, because I want to I want to tell you it's, it's something uh, something that's encouraging. Hopefully, it'll be encouraging to you. There was a financial uh, study that was done so many so, uh, so many years ago uh, in the Economic Times, and they found out that Christians, above any other faith community in the world, holds the majority of wealth in our world. Did you know that? So if you're a Christian, you can consider yourself part of the majority of those who hold the, wealth, the majority of the wealth of the world. Now, we believe, I believe we are, we are a blessed country, even though we have our, our, our follies and there are some, uh, even some really uh, um, difficult issues that we're struggling with as a nation. I still believe that we live in a God-blessed nation and that God has specifically put Christians in America and uh, given us the opportunity to have wealth to be able to leverage that wealth for the sake of the gospel. And what's incredible to me is that God still has this plan and has, uh, to be honest, uh, I like being a part of it. I'll be honest. I, I'm, I'm blessed to have be, bo be born in the United States. I'm blessed to be have born in a time that I have. And I am thankful to God that God has allowed that, that to, be, to be in my, in, my, in my case. But there is another study that, uh, there's good news and bad news, right? There's another study that was done uh, surveying uh, Christians, evangelicals, in a book called The Generosity Factor, Evangelicals and Giving. And what they found out was this. While the majority of evangelicals say that tithing, that is giving of 10% of one's income to the church, is a biblical commandment, only an estimated 13% of those people engage in the practice, while half give away less than 1% of their income Annually, that is to any charitable giving. So that's including just church. That's including the bell ringers around Christmas time. That's including toys for tots. That's including city mission. That's all these kinds of things combined. And when the data was broken down beyond the averages, the median for giving to church and charity combined showed a median figure of exactly one percent, one percent of someone's income. I think about that for a moment. According to that study, half of all American evangelical Protestants give less than 1% of their household income to the church or to charity. I want to tell you that it hasn't always been that way. In fact, when you do studies and you open up the Word of God and you look at the very, the very early church, the first century church, generosity was the hallmark of the first century church. It's really hard for us to kind of imagine as we, as we sit in our air-conditioned buildings on our padded seats and in our wonderfully microphoned auditorium, and it's such a beautiful auditorium that we have, it's hard for us sometimes to imagine what it was like to be a Christian in the first century. 
But Christians in the first century did not have anything. Christians in the first century were marginalized by their society. They didn't have a voice in their society. When people found out that you were a Christian, for the most part, you were ostracized by the community. You lived in the Roman Empire at the time, and they were kind of political outcasts. They didn't get uh, a favorite. There, there was no favor uh, laws that, that protected them. There was no 501c3s. There was no uh, charitableness towards Christians in the first century. They didn't have a voice in their society. They didn't have much money. To be honest, most Christians, if you were to fi- be found out at work that you were a Christian, most people would either fire you outright or not hire you if they found out you were a Christian because Christianity was sort of looked at as like a cult in the Roman Empire. And a lot of people had no desire to be associated with Christians when it came to their business. And so most Christians didn't have a voice in their society. They didn't have voting rights. They didn't have money. In fact, many of them didn't even have basic human rights. Many Christians were... um, not just ostracized or kicked out of their community. Many of them were arrested. They were thrown into places uh, where they would battle gladiators and lions and they'd be torn apart and they'd be killed for the cause of Christ, just for naming the name of Christ. That's what it was like to be a Christian in the first century. But history tells us and the word of God tells us that Christians in the first century leveraged what they did have to change the world. And they literally changed the world so much so that people said in the scriptures that they turned the world upside down. Now, how did people who had no money, no rights, no voting power, no voice in their society change the world? Well, I believe that they changed the world through their generosity. That they changed the world and the people around them because of how generous they lived their life. They shared their food, their clothing, their possessions. They distributed it with each other, the scripture says. In the dark ages, as time passed on, there were people who would run out of the cities because of the plague. And you know who stayed behind? The Christians. And generously served their communities and the people around them. Many of them, it cost them their lives. But generosity was what it meant to be a Christian in the first century church. Now, why, why is there such a disconnection between church now, Christians now, and Christians in the first century? Well, I want to tell you today that sometimes wealth has side effects. Now, I know nobody in here is, is rich, but we all know somebody who's rich, right? You can think of that person in their mind. The truth is, is that wealth has side effects. In fact, those who are wealthy often are plagued by discontentment. Because stuff is like an appetite. The more of it you have, the more your appetite grows. The opposite is true. The less you have, the less that appetite tends to shrink. But rich people, they get stuff, and as they get more stuff, they're not content. Because stuff cannot make you content. But they continue to want more. And rich people do things like this. I know you probably never heard of this, but rich people do things like upgrading. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, but I'll explain to you, those, those of you, because I know there's no rich people in here. But upgrading is this. Upgrading is when you take something that works just fine, and you replace it with something that works just fine. Now, rich people, rich people do this. I know, you, I know you've never, no one's ever done this, but rich people do this. They take a car 
that works perfectly fine, and they drive it to a lot. And this guy walks out, and he looks like he's their best friend. Hey, how are you doing, buddy? And they give him a bunch of money, or they sign some papers, and then they drive off the lot with another car, and they leave their car that was working just fine on the lot. That's called upgrading. I know that's strange, isn't it? Rich people, they do things like uh, uh, taking that car, and they drive it home, right? And rich people, they have a home that they live in. They also have a home for their car. It's called a garage. And so they pull up to their garage, and they're going to put that brand new car that they just put into that garage, and then they stop. And they realize, I can't fit my car in its home because all the stuff that's in my home is now in my car's home, and I can't fit it in there anymore, right? It's just crazy. Rich people do things like they rip out their cabinets, and they rip out their bathrooms, and they rip out sinks and refrigerators that are working just fine, and then they replace them with sinks and refrigerators and cabinets that work just fine, right? It's craziness, right? Now, I'm making a joke, right? I'm being facetious a little bit. But this is the reality of wealth. That wealth sometimes has side effects. And if we're not careful, we walk into our uh, closets. And, you know, rich people do this sometimes. They walk into their closets and, and, and they look around and there's clothes. And, and they say, I have nothing. Well, you may have heard it. I have nothing to Oh no, you guys have heard it too. But the reality is, is that in that closet, they've got dress clothes, workout clothes, work in the yard clothes, play in the snow clothes. They've got clothes, right? That's not your house. It's maybe some, it's just mine. But I say this all tongue in cheek, but here's the reality today. The reality is that God knew that we would often struggle with the blessings that he has given us. God knew that you and I would have the potential to struggle with wealth. And so Paul, in his very last letter that he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, leaves this by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, these instructions to tell Timothy to tell those who were in that early church, and some instructions that were given to them. And when it comes to faith promise giving, I want us to be able to look at this scripture today and understand that there really are three attributes that can demonstrate our faith in God. And I want, I'm, my prayer is that as we look into this scripture and as the Lord blesses the reading and the studying of his word, that we would see a need for us to demonstrate our faith in God today. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and setting of the scripture together. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word that oftentimes is like that double-edged sword. Lord, that does its job to pierce our hearts, especially in places of hardship, especially in places that have become sometimes fortresses. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this word of God and Father, like the great physician you are, cut to the heart of the matter. Lord, to remove this stony heart, Lord, and give us a heart of flesh. Lord, that we would be obedient to the word of God. Lord, that we would not just know the word of God, but allow it to change the way that we think. Allow it to change the way that we live so that we can give you glory, so that we can look like your Christ. And Father, so that we can reach the world around us with the gospel before it's too late. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 
If you're in the scripture today, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Scripture says, once again, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Let's stop there. If you're taking notes today, the first thing I want us to look at from the scripture is that if we're going to have a heart that demonstrates a heart of faith, we need to be people who have a humble spirit. We must be people who have a humble spirit. He says in verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. See, like all change, biblical change, it must start first in our hearts and in our minds. It must start on the inside before we change the outside. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, the key to every man is his thought. Sturdy and defying though he look, he has a helm in which he obeys, which is the idea after which all his facets are classified. He can only be reformed by showing him a new idea which commands his own. See, the reason why humility which is the opposite of high-mindedness, is so necessary in faith-giving is because high-mindedness keeps us from realizing the role that we serve as God's stewards of our things. As the Bible puts it, God owns everything and we owned nothing. Psalm 24 verse 1 says it this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that's everything in it, the world and they that dwell therein. Anything that we do have, anything that you would say is yours, even though it's actually God's, has been given to you by God. James 1.17 says it this way, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In our text, Paul uses a very interesting word here, the word high-minded actually only appears twice in the New Testament, both times written by Paul. The one time is here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The other is in Romans chapter 11, where he warns the church. He says, you guys have been grafted in to this tree that was once the Jewish nation. But as I've broken that off and I've, I've, I've brought in you, grafted you in, don't be high-minded, church. He says, because if God is willing to break off the natural branch, how much more would he be willing to break off the unnatural? Don't be arrogant about your salvation, Paul says. And this is what Paul is charging Timothy to tell rich people. Don't be arrogant in your richness. It is in humility we find that we are like the true Christ. For Christ was the example of humility. Very familiar passage about the humiliation of Jesus is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, it was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The God of heaven walked away from heaven, humbled himself, became a dirty, rotten man, walked in the mud, walked in the slums, 
was even willing to die a criminal's death on a cross to demonstrate his humility and what it was like to live humble before God. This was all part of God's plan. But when it comes to humility in a Christian's life, humility is what takes a Christian who talks like Jesus and turns them into a person who looks like Jesus. You see, humility is the key to unlocking faith-giving. Humility is the key to unlocking faith-giving. I heard one time after a pastor resigned his pulpit, there was a time of lamenting with the church, and he was approached on his last Sunday by an elderly woman who was broken up and in tears, and she was crying, and the pastor wanted to still be her pastor and console her, and he said, hey, I just want to put my hand over you, and I just want to let you know that you don't need to weep as I leave, that, and she says, but yeah, pastor, things, things are just never going to be the same, and he, said, he put his arm around her, and he said, oh, I, I just want to let you know I love you, and I don't want you to worry. I want you to be confident looking towards the future because I believe that this is God's church and God's going to bring in a new pastor and this pastor, he's probably even going to be better than me. And as she continued to weep and sob and her hands on her face, she said, yes, that's what the last three pastors said. It just keeps getting worse. (laughs) Now, I don't know that we need to be humbled like that, but... And I say that in jest. We have a great pastor. I love pastor. I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak this morning. I love my job. Um, and uh, <laughs> I've been, I've been um, doing some interviews with many of those of you in our church as we're looking towards the 70th anniversary. And we have an incredible history. I just want to let you know, you, if, you, if you need to be here on that, that third, 70th anniversary, there's some incredible stories I think you need to hear. But we have an incredible history, a credible heritage of God-honoring pastors. And we have seen God work through the last 70 years here at Trinity, in Finley, in people's lives. And I know that there's so many people here that could testify to that, the ministry in their own life. If, you have, if you've had a chance to look at one of those bullet, uh, um, uh, brochures for a missions conference, man, since 2015, we've been able to give together collectively almost $3.5 million dollars to faith promise missions, to send missions and missionaries across the world. But church, I want to charge you not to be high-minded about those things, not to be arrogant and to look and say, wow, look what we've been able to do as a church, but to give God the glory in those things and to believe that the best is yet to come with uh, with God's help. If you're taking notes, the second thing I want us to look at this passage is that if we're going to demonstrate our faith in God, not only do we have to have a spirit that's humble, we also need to have a confident faith. A confident faith. Look on in verse 17. He says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. You know, oftentimes, maybe we don't miss the mark in, in arrogancy. I say, I, I'm not arrogant. I'm not arrogant about those kinds of things. But oftentimes where we miss the mark is this next part, which is a reason why I believe the Holy Spirit had Paul put it in. Because oftentimes we 
we fall short when it comes to where we place our faith. Because something strange happens when we begin to amass or collect money. See, the truth is, is that as your income increases, your hope begins to migrate. King Solomon, who was somebody who handled way more money than you and I will ever handle in our lifetimes, said this about money in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 11. He said, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. And as a high wall in his own conceit. What he is saying here is that as your income goes up, you imagine your wealth to be something you can place your hope and security in. You think it's a fortified city. You think it's this unscalable wall. And as long as you have enough of it, things are going to be okay. Now I want to ask you a question. Think about in your head. We're talking about faith promise. We're talking about giving and giving extraordinarily. I want to ask you this question. As you consider today and through the next few days what God would have you to do. How much money would you need as far as your income? How much money would you need to begin giving extraordinarily to missions? I'm not talking about what you can afford. I'm not talking about if you somehow reworked your budget and made sure that it it would work in there. Those are all great ways of giving. My question to you is, how much money, how much income would you need to start giving in such a way that you are giving by faith and that the only way you're going to make that commitment is if the God you serve is real? That's what I'm talking about. How much money would you need coming in to give like that? Now, I'm going to amaze you, okay? This is a mentalist trick. I already know your answer. Here's your answer. More than you currently have. More than you currently have. And I want to tell you, that's always the answer. Because here's what happens. When your income goes up, your hope begins to migrate towards your resources. And you begin to come back. When it comes to this area of giving, you come back to the idea of, yeah, I could do that, but, but what if this happens? I could do that, but, but, but what if something like this were to happen? And you begin to place your hope and your security in your resources. And as you gain more and more and more into your hands... Your hands begin to do this. They begin to close up around what God has given you. You begin to trust your riches for security in this world. You know why poor people are consistently more generous than rich people? Studies have shown this over and over again. You want to know why? Because poor people don't put their faith in riches. Because they don't have any. When wealth becomes your hope, what happens is that you feel compelled to hoard. You begin to hoard and amass and build a treasure trove because 
A rich man's wealth is his strong city and a high wall in his own conceit. Once again, King Solomon, who handled way more finances than you and I will ever handle in our lifetime, came to this conclusion. It's a prayer in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. He prays this to the Lord. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. I believe Jesus put it this way to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You know, I believe Jesus is still right today. Imagine that. I believe Christians are only serving one master. Our hope is only found in one thing. You don't believe me? I want to ask you another question. And you realize there's going to be so much participation today. I want to ask you another question. I'm going to show you two statements on the screen. And I want you to think and answer in your own heart, honestly. Which one of these two statements makes you more anxious? Statement number one, there is no God. After you die, that's it. There's nothing. Darkness, blackness, whatever. Statement number two, you have no money. Bank calls, it's all been, ta- it's all been forfeited. Boss calls, you're fired. No severance pay. Tomorrow you wake up, there's no money. Bills are still, co- still coming due. Which one of those statements makes you more anxious inside? Now I want to flip the script. Come on over here. You walk into the hospital room. The doctor walks up to you and says, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm sorry, sir. You have a terminal illness. There's no cure. There's even no treatment. In fact, chances are you're probably going to die in the next 48 hours. I want to ask you the question again. Which one of these two statements gives you more anxiety? There's no God. After you die, that's it. There's nothing. Or... You have no money. Why does it take oftentimes to the end of our life to realize the truth about God's word? That when it comes to where we place our faith and our security, that it shouldn't be in uncertain riches, but, as Paul puts it, in the God who gives us richly everything to enjoy. Not to put our hopes and our dreams in our stockpiles or in our portfolios or in our bank accounts, but to put our faith in the one who richly provides those things. Number three, as we move along, we're taking notes. Number three, how else can we demonstrate our faith in God Well, first, we must have a humble spirit and then a confident faith in the God who richly provides. But finally, we must have a generous heart. 
a generous heart. Look on in verse 18 of our passage. Paul says to Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Verse 18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Paul says here, and I think he says it best, that they do good. Remember the audience that he's talking to here. He's talking to, Paul, he's talking to Timothy, but he's saying, Timothy, I want you to transfer this knowledge to those who are rich in this world. What's incredible about history, we talked about the first century church a little bit and how they had it, but I think what's incredible and how God has, has orchestrated all this, because I believe that history is really is his story, God has providentially placed you and I, in one of the most blessed nations in the world. And he has given us all things richly to enjoy, but he has also positioned us in a place that above any other Christian in history, we have the most capacity to do good. We have the most freedoms that any Christian has ever experienced. We have the most resources that ever, any Christian has ever experienced. We have the most freedoms that any Christian has ever experienced. And God has put us here at this place on purpose, I believe, to do good and to be rich in good works. Paul says do good, but not just regular old good. Remember who he's talking to. I want you to do good like only a rich person can do good. I want you to be rich in good works, Paul says. He emphasizes here the giving financially. Now, we don't have time to study it all out, but if you look back at the verses above it in chapter 6, Paul is encouraging almost the entire chapter and he's teaching Timothy, I want you to teach them what it looks like to handle finance as well. What contentment looks like. Beware the love of money, which is the root of all evil. Be generous, he says. It's the context of the entire chapter. So Paul here makes it very clear. He's not just saying, help a lot of old people across the street. Make sure you clean up the neighbor's trash in their yard. That's not the good he's talking about. And he wants to be a little bit more clear, so he says, he throws in the word rich. Be rich in good works. Now, all those kinds of things are great, but that's not what he's talking about here. When he says do good and be rich in good works, he is talking about being generous with your finances. And he quantifies his meaning with the rest of that verse. He says do good, be rich in good works. What else does he say? Ready to distribute Willing to communicate, as if he wasn't being clear enough with the first two things. These both, these both ready to, a readiness to distribute and a willing to communicate, they are both communicating a spirit of generosity. In fact, if you're taking notes, generosity is both the readiness and willingness to give it away. Generosity is both the readiness and willingness to give it away. I heard a folk story one time. It came out of the country of India. 
There was a boy who loved marbles. My mom was a big marble collector. She always had her favorite shooter marble. And he had a favorite marble. It was his blue marble. And he would go around town, and he would circle up that, those marbles, and he would shoot them, and he would win. He, had, he'd be, he came home with everybody's marbles. He loved his marbles, and he loved his shooter marble. But as he walked down the street, one day, a little girl caught his eye. And the little girl, she was eating chocolates out of this old sack. And he goes, man, I got to have me some chocolates. I haven't had chocolate in a long time. Remember, this is India, right? So I got to have those chocolates. So he walks up to the girl and he says, I want to make you a deal. I got all these marbles in my pocket. How about we make a trade? I'll trade you all my marbles for all of your chocolate. Now, marbles was a big deal. So the girl goes, yeah, that sounds great. I'll trade you my marbles for or my chocolate for all your marbles. So the little boy, he was a sly young man, he reaches his hands in his pockets and he pushes his favorite marble all the way down to the bottom of his pocket. And then he uses their other four fingers and pulls out all the marbles, leaving his blue marble in his pocket. He hands it over to the girl. She takes all the marbles and then hands over that sack of chocolates to the boy. The boy begins to pound down the chocolates and as he's walking away, he thinks to his mind, wait a minute, and he turns around and he asks the girl, did you give me all of the chocolates? He had it in his mind that if he was a thief, well, maybe she was too. See, our, our fallen nature sometimes persuades us to, to posture ourselves in kind of the same and deceptive manner when it comes to our resources. See, we want everything that God has to offer. I've never come across a Christian who's been, I don't want God to bless me. We all want what God has to offer, right? We want God's blesses. We want God's blessing on our family and on our finances and on our home. God, make sure that my car doesn't break down, right? We want God's blessings. But oftentimes, we're unwilling to give up everything to get it. We have our proverbial blue marble in our pocket. And we'll give God these things, but I'm holding on to this, God, for me, because it's my favorite. And many times, we posture ourselves in the same way. We want God's blessings, but we're not willing to give everything we have to God and to live in faith. Today, we, more than any Christians who came before us, have an incredible opportunity to be generous and to do good as only God can do through us. But it takes us, it takes a certain surrendering, a willingness, a readiness to do what God is laying on our heart to do. And as we surrender everything over to God in faith, we can demonstrate our humility, our confidence in our God, and our generosity by the way that we respond today to faith promise. But see, generous giving isn't something that a church asks you to do. No, 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 no. Generous giving is something that God has done already and asks you to imitate. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 puts it this way. But God commendeth, that means demonstrated, his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
One of the most well-known verses in all of our culture, even those who aren't believers, is John 3.16. Maybe you've heard it. For God so loved the world that he what? Yeah, gave. It's only we got inside, you got it. God demonstrates his generosity over and over and over again, still today. But he has over 2,000 years ago when he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, from heaven to this earth to walk among us and to hang on an old rugged cross. And there God placed upon him the debt and the sin of you and I upon his shoulders, upon his body, And he was broken and crushed for our sin, for my sin and yours. And God demonstrates his generosity to us in not just paying the penalty for our sin, but offering us eternal life in return. For the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, in an auditorium like this, I'd imagine there's somebody here maybe who's never placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And I want to tell you today that as pastor said, we don't always talk about money, but we do talk about giving a whole lot. And the giving that I want to tell you about today is not giving from your pocketbook, but the giving that God has given to you. Because the Bible says we've all fallen short of God's glory. Romans puts it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You say, what's the big deal if everybody's done that? I'm just one of the crowd. Well, the big deal is in Romans 6, 23. It says that the wages of sin is death. But it goes on to say, the gift of God, there's his generosity again, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a kind of giving that you can only experience when you receive the giving that God gives to you. If you've never called upon Christ to save you, I want to tell you today that God is ready and willing to distribute his eternal life to you if you were to call upon him. Because God loves you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?